If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. It's no secret Yeti has some of the best and most durable gear out there. But when it came to hydration, they previously didn't have a great backcountry solution. Well, that all changed with their new Yonder water bottle. My Yonder covered the backcountry all across the West last season while chasing mule deer, elk, caribou, and more. It's about 50% lighter than their insulated Rambler, but still has that Yeti toughness. The best part is they've now got them in four different sizes, so you can pack the bottle perfectly fit for your hunt. To top it off, there's also great options for customization. You can check them out now at yeti.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Live Wild podcast. This week, we've got our Live Wild Live. We're coming at you from what I'm calling elk month. So there are a lot of elk questions stacked in here, a lot of people calling in. Another nice feature of today's call in live is we've got two awesome prizes. We've got a Live Wild Yeti Yonder bottle, as well as, and I think this prize is uh, one that most people are probably gunning for, we've got a Magna Cut Speed Goat from Montana Knife Company. That's the Live Wild edition. Those are only available on a, a limited time drop that we did through our email. And I've got one saved for a special caller today. So feel free for those of you calling for the first time, if you get through, what we'll do is, is when I answer your call, just give me your name, where you're from, and, and we'll go into your hunting questions. So Oh, one thing I've got this week. So I'm kind of continually trying to upgrade this podcast the best I can. So the tips and tactics stay the same, but my equipment hopefully improves. I've had some technical difficulties in the past. So I got a new switcher board here and it's got some pretty sweet sound effects. I don't know. I Maybe I'm just going to make it this uh, podcast kind of like uh, late... 90s early 2000s morning dj remember the morning like radio host remember those is like listening to the morning radio show and they'll be like all these things popping in all these sound effects i i pre-uploaded a few of my own sound effects just for this podcast a little bit of this is just to fire everyone up here oh yeah there we go all right well we're gonna jump into our first caller here and we'll talk. Let's talk some elk hunting. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hello. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Remy, it's Sam from Wisconsin. 
Hey, Sam, what's uh, what's your question? Hey, so I had a question on um, like determining like freshness of sign. And then like when you determine the freshness of that sign, like what are your follow on actions and like finding the elk after you decided like, oh, this is like fresh sign. This is really old sign. This is like, you know, a day or, or two old. Yeah, so, you know, there, there's a lot of different kinds of elk sign that elk leave behind. And there's a few ways that you can tell what's fresh and what's not. So primary, some good sign would be dropping scat. The one thing that, I, there's a couple ways to identify if that's fresh. The first is like, it looks slimy when it's really fresh. Um, it's got like a sheen to it. Oftentimes you can like push or grab it, whatever you want to do. You take a stick, push on it, use your foot, kick it, roll it around. Sometimes like if it's if it's semi-fresh, but it's been there a little bit, like the air will start to dry it out. So as you kick it, like the inside has that shine, but the outside doesn't. So you know that that's a little bit fresher. What you're thinking about is like, it, now there's also stuff that's been there for days or weeks or months, and that's it just starts to dry out over time. Um, so when you do find something that's really fresh, often it just means like, okay, here the animals were here. But I think that what I like to do as well is say like, well, what, where is this sign and, and what does it mean? If I find it in the timber and I see beds everywhere and then there's fresh droppings, I go, okay, I know that they were bedded here maybe this morning or maybe it's out in a, a feeding area and you go, okay, they were bedded here last night. They probably got up here and fed and then moved off into the timber. So it allows me to kind of play that chess game of where these elk are at. Some other sign that I really like to look for especially during the September season, during the rut. I use my nose to kind of find that sign as well, you know, smelling continually and going, okay, it, does this smell like an elk's been here? You can smell where elk have peed, where elk have wallowed. If you get up to a wallow and it just reeks of elk, you know, okay, this is a, this is a high activity wallow. Another type of sign that you'll find a lot during the rut and which can maybe mean some things and not is just finding up rubs and torn up trees. What that's telling you is like, okay, there's a bull in here. And sometimes you can redetermine like, okay, how fresh it is based off of the limbs. You know, some people will see them and they can look fresh for years in some ways, but the limbs that are freshly broken, are they still green? Like, what's that look like? What about the the sap in there? Does it even smell still? I'll, I'll sniff a rub and make sure like, okay, it smells like a bull's been right here. Oftentimes when stuff's really fresh, you can smell them in that area as well. And so combining all those things says, okay, there was elk here. And then how I proceed is if it seems very, very fresh, then it's, it's, it keys you in to go, okay, this is an area I really need to focus on. I need to slow down. I need to pay attention. That Those are the kind of steps that I take. Maybe I say, oh, I need to call from here because they were here recently. And you know, okay, I found an area where there was elk very recently. They're probably using this area for a reason and they're probably nearby. So those are the kind of the steps that I take once I encounter something like that. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful because that was just like one big thing that I was kind of kind of curious about was like, you know, I've read about like, oh, like if you read elk sign, that'll like tell you, you know, where they are or like, how fresh it is, but that really kind of clears the air about some, some things I was wondering about. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is like, you know, kind of trying to build out the story of what are they doing? Like if I find, you know, it depends on the time of year. Like there's times where you'll find fresh elk sign. Let's say it's during the rut. And it's like, okay, there's, there's fresh poop here. There's beds right here. And it's first thing in the morning and you can smell it. You're like, all right, those elk are probably 
I would look, I'd pull out my maps and say like, where's a good feeding area? Cause they probably moved off of this bed and are feeding right now. Now, if it's the, like the opposite, like maybe it's the middle of the day and you just like, you hit some sign that's so fresh, you know, it's like within hours, but maybe you see something that's like a couple days old, two, three days old. That might not, it might mean they're using this area. It might mean that they come back to this area. It might mean that they're on a circuit and they're kind of passing through this area. So you, you kind of want to identify like where it's at and also, you know, the, the type of terrain that's around you and then try to build out, well, what's the next logical step? Where should I be looking next? What could they be doing? What part of the day is it? How fresh do I think it is? Um, and, and then you kind of start to build out the story of like what the elk are doing. And that just gives you a better observation of the elk in that area. And once you start to learn their patterns and habits, then you can start to, you know, turn up a lot more elk. Definitely, definitely. Thank you so much, man. Yep, appreciate the call. Thank you. All right, let's go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, it's Carl Anderson from Wisconsin. Hey, Carl, how's it going? Not bad. Uh, hey, just quick question. What's your uh, best recommendation for uh, getting better at elk calling? If you had any resources or uh, videos or anything that you or tips to just get better at calling elk? Yeah. So this is a, this is a good question. And I'm actually going to be doing something for this in this upcoming elk month that we're doing. But I think that the best way to get good at making elk calls is to learn from elk themselves. So listening to elk sounds and then just trying to match that sound, listen to a bugle, try to match the bugle, because that's what I, I even think if you're in the woods doing that, that's the best thing. So that's the best practice as well hear an elk sound, make an elk sound, hear an elk sound, make an elk sound, continually trying to, to understand those notes and then match it with your tone of your calling. And that really, really helps me when even just like um, preseason or whatever. The other thing that I do a lot of is I just like, I'm sometimes in the car a lot this time of year. And so I always have my calls in the car. If you've got a commuter, you're just driving around and by yourself, preferably. <laughs> Most people don't like to hear it when they're in the car too, but just practice, you know, and, and in the truck is the best place to practice. When I'm going on a road trip or driving anywhere, I've got like elk calls in every vehicle and I'm just constantly just making elk noises. And it, it's fun to do, it passes the time, but also it's a good way to just get better at it. And then another thing too, if you're using diaphragm calls, you, you'll have some calls that you practice with, but the more you use those calls, the, the they kind of get a sweet spot and then they start to wear out. Like they're hard at first and then they get a sweet spot and then they start to wear out. So if I have some in the car, I'll have multiple ones. So when I get one working to a sweet spot, I just reserve it for the season and then I start working on another one. Right on, appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it's the all call. all good information. No problem. Thanks for the answering my call and love the podcast and all the content. Keep it up. Yeah, thanks, man. Best of luck to you. Thank you. You too. Catch you later. All right. Let's take our next caller here. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Remy. It's Jack from uh, Denver. Hey, Jack. How's it go, man? Good. Um, yeah, so this will be my first year elk hunting out here, and I was curious. I pulled a mule deer tag for second rifle season, um, and I was looking to get an over-the-counter bull elk tag. Should I pair up on that second season rifle, or should I go with the third season uh, bull elk tag? And is there any difference in like potentially having snow later in the year versus being a little closer to the rut at the end of October for second season? Um, or any differences there? Yeah, there are, and it, it does depend on 
the year as well as like it depends a lot on where you're at, right? So if it's a high elevation area, earlier would probably be better because they might move out later. Now, if it's a more of a winter range, later is always good because you get the increase of elk moving in. One of the things with some areas is the later you go, the more stacked they get on private. So I also like to look at, hey, the area that I'm going, what's the private to public access look like? If there's a lot of private, maybe a little bit earlier is better because they do start to stack in on private as the season goes on. Uh, as they start to get more pressure, they get pushed there. Also, they might just be moving there because there's good food sources. Snow starts to stack up. As far as like combining... Uh, you said you might have the potential to combine a deer and an elk tag during the same time period. Is that correct? Yeah. So I got a mule deer um, for second season. So I'm not sure if that impacts it either, but yeah, you, uh, being my first year for both. It's that right there makes it a, a tough choice, right? So I would just base it kind of off of how much time I have. And then if you could dedicate time to elk specifically and deer specifically, I think that that's the best way to hunt for the most part, like focusing on one. But if you're in there anyways and a big bull pops out, you're gonna be like, why don't I have a tag for this, right? Because it can be incidental. I think statistically, if you want to harvest an elk, you're gonna be best focusing on elk. So even if I had both tags at the same time, I would probably think of which animal am I gonna hunt? Now, if you had the time to split it up and do two separate hunts, well, then maybe I would I would just opt for that based off of what the schedule looks like, right? Um, so it, I think yeah, it can be honestly like for... A, the most part, it can be a toss up in some ways because every week kind of has its own thing going for it. And every area is a little bit different. So I can't give you an exact, I would pick this one over this one. Um, I would just base it more off of the time that I had allotted. Uh, if you go like, I can only hunt X amount of days. Well, maybe it's best to just combine the two tags and then focus on one. And if you get lucky, then you've got good knowledge for that time right then. You've kind of essentially been scouting and doing your, doing your thing in there. And if something pops up and gives you an opportunity that you weren't expecting, absolutely take it. So that's that's just a good bonus to that. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like I, I've heard elk bugling late October. There is some good action then, but I've also hunted areas that are late season, more migration hunts. And it's like, man, once that snow starts going and you get, if you got a heavy winter early, it doesn't get any better. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the insight. Thank you. Yep. Well, best of luck. Keep me posted on how you do and what you end up deciding. Yeah, we will do. Thanks. Yep. Catch you later. All right. Let's jump into our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking hey. to? Hey, Remy. This is uh, Ben. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Good. Hey, I'm from West Virginia. Um, heading out to Colorado this year with a small group. Um, everybody put in for bull tags. And I was the only one who put in for a cow tag. Is there any difference in how you hunt um, cow elk versus bull elk? In some ways, yes. You know, because the nice thing about cow elk hunting is there's often more opportunity and you aren't like necessarily some places you hunt, it's got to be a certain kind of bull. Like there's more cows in pretty much every unit yep. that you hunt, right? So you just have more opportunity. Because there's more opportunity, I also, it depends on the season. Is it, are you talking archery or rifle or when was uh, the season? Sorry, rifle, first rifle. Okay. So it'll be like the second week of October. Yeah, you know, I mean, the I kind of think of that time frame. you know, cows are in generally bigger herds. And I, I think that they, they have a lot of things that they, look for and one of those is security they just be coming out of the rut 
and they've been chased around a lot. They've been pushed off feed by bulls. And so they're going to be starting into feeding patterns. And that is really good for glassing. So when they're in those feeding patterns, I focus on areas that have good graze for, for elk. And I'd probably get back and glass as much country as I could, cover as much with your eyes, get your optics set up. That's a good tactic for bulls as well. But as like the rut slows down, the bulls start to pull away from the cows. And so they might not be in that feeding pattern yet. They might be in more of a seclusion pattern. So if I, if it were me, I would just like start focusing on feeding areas and, and good glassing vantages. And that's a good tactic for anything. But the nice thing about a cow elk is the, the difference is when you see them, if you see one, there's probably more. And I just go make those plays, get in close and, and try to get a shot. You know, so that like you don't necessarily have to be super picky when it comes to cows. I I, I get kind of picky because I try to look for like the large young ones. But um, honestly, I've yeah. never like eaten a bad cow elk. So, yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, appreciate it. Best of luck to you. Thanks. All right, let's go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Uh, Brian from Idaho. Hey, Brian. How's it going, man? Good. So my question was, uh, this year I drew a very limited tag in southwest, all of southwest corner of Idaho there that you might be familiar with. So my question is kind of a two-part question is, how would I approach or should approach this hunt versus previous hunts uh, where you're hunting like timber pockets and high, this is going to be like high elevation desert. Uh, so maybe different things I might do for that. And then also the elk in this area are known to be like very, very vocal, like bugling all over the place so should i leave my bugle well i'll take it but should i not bugle as much and more listen and go for like a more spot and stock approach yeah that's a great question you know i think like the first thing is the nice thing about a limited entry tag right you have more opportunity and so it depends what you're looking for if you're looking for you're like hey i really want a really big elk uh you're going to be a lot more picky and what i do in those scenarios is I'm, I, yeah, I essentially spend my time looking because it, it, it in that type of country is a little bit more open country. So you can look over a lot of bulls. I definitely would still bring and plan on calling because sometimes they're, it, they don't put themselves in an opportunity to uh, be stocked super easily. Or you might be in a scenario where you're hearing bugles and you can use the bugle to either see if you can entice the bull or draw bulls out to get a good look at them. Like you mentioned though, if you're doing more listening, then you aren't necessarily giving away your position. So it gives you a lot more options that way to just say like, okay, what's this bull look like? Is this a bull that I want to go after? And yes, no. And if it is, then how do I proceed? Stalking is an extremely effective tactic, especially on larger bulls because you know you don't have to trick them in a way that you do with calls. However, Sometimes what I've learned in limited entry areas is the elk haven't been, I mean, they're, they're calling toward each other, but sometimes they can be a little bit easier to trick too because they aren't getting chased around. They're acting like elk and they assume that everything that's calling is an elk. So sometimes tags in those areas can actually be really in, conducive to calling and really conducive to cow calling as well. So, you know, just having that in your bag of tricks, I absolutely would would go in with that mentality. Awesome, thanks. Yeah, that was really the line I was thinking because one, I don't want to give away my position, but two, they're going to think everything's an elk anyway. So 
could be go both ways. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you will find yourself in in situations where you're like in a canyon. There's a bull screaming. He sounds like a big bull. I mean, I've done this with with buddies that have had good tags, and we're like, let's go in there and hunt, like just hunt hunt a bugle, get, hunt him like he's calling, and and get in there and, and do the same thing you would in any other timber pocket and call in a bull. And I've called in some 370, 380 plus bulls that way. We go, we didn't even know what that bull was going to be. And I've also called in some like 280 kind of bulls that just sounded mean and the big ones snuck out the back and we just didn't even know he was there, right? But it, it can be an effective way to get in and, and kill bulls too, especially if you've got somebody calling for you or with you. I definitely, I, I think a lot of people shy away from calling in those kind of units and I actually enjoy, that's the way that I enjoy hunting in September is calling. So I, I still do it. And it's it's fun for me to do that. So I still use those tactics and I'm still successful with them. So you can you can use both tactics and still find success. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, well, best of luck to you, man. Definitely keep me posted on that one. I'll, I'll be interested to see how you do. That's a really cool area down there. And there's some, there's some awesome yeah, road will, action for sure. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be great, man. Right on. Well, best of luck to you. Uh, Catch you later. Thanks for me. Yep. All right. We're going to jump into our next caller here. Hey, welcome back to the Live Wild podcast. Who am I talking with? Hey, Fred Cousins from Denver. Hey, how's it going, man? Good, good. Remy, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you good. Uh, what's your question? Awesome. Hey, Remy. Um, yeah, so I'm going um, archery over the counter tag in Colorado. It's. Um, probably 50 miles south of Wyoming and 50 miles east of Steamboat Springs. And I went there last year and on the last day of a four day hunt, um, I was sitting on a spring and it was hot as hell. It was the first weekend of the season. Um, and probably two hours before dusk, um, I couldn't believe it. The first elk I've ever seen, um, on the hunt, was about 140 yards coming into the spring just appeared and he started walking the tree line and he was real cautious he was dipping in and out of the tree line and i just said all right he's coming my way i'm not going to call or anything i'm just going to stand up behind this tree so i stood up behind the tree and he got within 90 yards and he was like perpendicular to me and i didn't call or anything and he just went off into the trees and i figured hey at this time of night um there's still plenty of daylight he's probably going to come on back the wind was in my favor, um, and I ended up giving a little cow call. It wasn't great because uh, it wasn't a read. It was one of those, like, easy cow calls. Yeah. Um, anyways, my question is, hey, what should I do in that situation, and should I go to that same, spot, same exact spot this year? Because I actually saw later that night when I was waiting for that 6x6, six six, I saw a 5x5 five five at 200 yards, and it was getting close to dark, and I, I ended up spooking him because I was trying to stalk him. And I actually told my buddy about this. My buddy ended up, up getting that five to five two days later. So first question is, what do you think I should do next time in that scenario with the six by six? And then second question would be, this year, should I just go back to the exact same spot and just start sniffing around? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, sometimes you don't know why elk are traveling, right? Like the bull could have been going to that water or he could have just been going maybe the, you know oftentimes when there's like a spring maybe that flows into another spring another spring it, it sounds like i it's hard i'm just kind of based off the story picturing an area where it might be like some timber maybe like a 
kind of a few wet spots. And then I think yeah, that, that spring would like go and yeah. stop and go and stop and go and stop and go. So he was probably watering somewhere else, to be honest. And then he just happened to be traveling back that way. It, I mean, if the wind was good, if he didn't see you and he just kind of slipped off, he was, he was there looking, right? Now, being early in the season, it's hard to say what he would have done if you started calling because then you're like giving away your position. And then, you know, you had an opportunity where you, you're like, I'm going to stock this one. And then it, it didn't work out, right? And sometimes that's the game. You know, if, if I were in that scenario, I might have done the exact same thing you did. But if that bull started to disappear, I probably would have like tried to snap him out of it and, and ripped on a bugle or or hit some elk calls pretty heavily just to try to be like, pop him out of whatever he was going on. Cause he, he was probably in that area watered and then just started cruising for, for elk. Now, whether he picked up a scent from another elk cows that had been in there and he's following that trail, who knows? Right. But I probably might've just started hitting some calls in there and, and seeing what I could muster up out of him, especially if he's by himself, I'd maybe start out with some cow calls and then throw, throw a bugle out there as well and just see like, okay, is he, is even interested. Um, sometimes we'll, I'll find elk early season though, like that. And they're just like, they're cruising and it doesn't matter what you do. They're just on a path and they're just going for it. Uh, it's, it's almost like mule deer get like that okay. really big during the rut. And sometimes that happens, but um, that, yeah, I, as far as going back into that area, I mean, I absolutely think that elk are creatures of habit. And so if you find an area that holds elk for some reason, keep checking it. Now, why they're in there and when they're in there can change seasonally too. This year, there's a lot of water. There's going to be a lot of water other places. It doesn't sound to me like maybe that particular spring. Like I bet if you had a trail camera on that spring, you'd catch elk in there often, but not super consistent because they'd be going a lot other places. And that's just what they do for safety. I'd, I'd definitely look around at the other areas and see if one particular spot is getting hammered more than others. I've done that many times where it's like one year the elk are hammering this spot and then I'm hunting that area and I realize five, 600 yards down the area is is where they're they're really hammering this next year. And then it changes, right? It just, as the water changes, things change, but they do get places that they like more often than others. And so I would definitely poke around in there and see if I could turn something up and maybe find a place in there where you missed or is has changed seasonally this year that they're using even heavier and then use the same tactic and see if you don't get them to come to exactly where you're at. Okay. That's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it was, it was really heavily timbered unit and that spring was at like 9,000 below like a 10,000 foot knob or a hump. Yep. And, um, I think I'm going to try to get to the top of that hump this year, but it's so thickly timbered. You just can't see much for, for long. So, um, but yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. There were some wallows in there. So would you recommend maybe sitting wallows? Yeah, definitely. Season? And you know, I think like, I, I personally think that wallows pick up as the rut picks up, you know, like I think that like a lot of guys opt to hunt wallows early, but if there's a lot of water, they're using it more as water than wallowing. They will use it as wallowing too, but you know, wallowing is really like a perfume station for the elk. That's when they just, they, they get mudded up, they smell, they that's like they're is a part of their display to the cows. And as the rut picks up, so does the frequency that they wallow. But yeah, I, I definitely think hunting wallows is a very effective way to hunt. And, you know, as long as you can keep the wind right and stay unseen, it can be a really effective way to spend your day elk hunting. If, if you're, you know, if you can do that kind of hunting some, sometimes you get a little ant, like I get a little antsy for it, but it can be super effective. 
Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Remy. Yep. Appreciate the call. Best of luck to you. Yes, sir. All right. We're going to jump to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Remy. This is Justin from Arkansas. Hey, Justin. How's it going, man? Man, pretty good. So I was able to draw a cow elk tag, two antelope tags, and my wife got a mill deer buck tag. Oh, wow. So we're going to be taking off. Yeah, so we hit the lottery, I guess. So um, anyway, we're super excited. And uh, so we're going to be taking off a few weeks um, and doing doing some hunts. But we have a three-year-old little boy, and he loves to talk, uh, make noises. But we obviously uh, want to incorporate him. I know you like to incorporate your kids and your parents incorporated you on your on their hunts. So, what is your best advice on taking a loud toddler hunting and having having a good time, making good memories, but also trying to fill the tags? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there, there's a few things that like my wife and I do, and and there's you know you you are limited in a lot of ways, right? There's some things you can do, some things you can't do. You kind of have to hunt to the the member of your party's best ability. So you're kind of hunting toward your kid's ability and for the most part. And so, you know, we, we try to incorporate things like things that, you know, hunting can get boring. It can get whatever, it can get cold, it can get uncomfortable. So continually changing it up and then just kind of keeping them engaged and involved. A lot of the things that we do is like cool snacks and, and be a part of the glassing. And, you know, it's okay to talk and when, you know, like not being quiet all the time, that's really hard for kids too. It's like, there's, there are times where, you know, even when I'm guiding or whatever, we're, we're chatting and talking and yeah, we can be quiet, but you know, it, I, I know a lot of parents that are like, they're, they're always like, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And it's like, well, come on, man, we just glass this. We're, we're, we're glassing nine miles away. Yeah. Something could pop up here, but there are times where if you're trying to make them quiet the whole day, it, it's very difficult. Right. So it's like, it's a lot easier to keep them quiet right. during the quiet times. <laughs> yeah. Like you want to have fun. You want to have a good time. And then another strategy too, like first when we're trying to, if it's like, Hey, this is a, this is a good tag. We want to bring our daughter, but also want better odds of success. Sometimes we'll, we'll switch off and it'll be like, I'll watch the kids and my wife will go on a stock or my wife will watch the kids and I'll, I'll go out for whatever and switching it around a little bit. So we'll go out together sometimes we'll we'll break off sometimes and maybe she'll take the, our daughter and and hey we're, we're gonna go back to the truck we're gonna watch a show we're gonna do whatever like mix it up a little bit and i'm just gonna go hard for the morning um you know so like there, there's strategies like that as well where you can kind of mix the two things and it's not easy <laughs> it's definitely not easy but it is a lot of fun and some of my favorite memories were hunts like that with my dad and, and mom and brothers and so it, you know, it's awesome to be able to bring them in on an experience like that. Yeah, and that's awesome. I appreciate the the advice. And um, I was I was curious if you did ever kind of separate, you know, went your own way on on a stock or anything like that. So yeah, that's that's great advice, Remy. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, we do that quite often. I I know like there's sometimes where I'll just even even like we might even be in the field and I'll be like tell my wife like okay you go you go stock this one and and you know I'll watch from here and and that kind of stuff and we're we're there you know watch mommy and through the spotting scope or whatever and um yeah it's a good way to like bring them in but also still have a little bit of success as well so it's it's fun to mix it up Absolutely man well that's awesome I appreciate it Yeah thanks I and love the podcast by the way he oh. loves uh, watching your YouTube videos he loves his his Remy show so. Awesome well I appreciate that and your luck continues because 
Uh, you happen to be the caller uh, oh my and one of our winners. You won the Yeti Yonder bottle. I set a little timer here. Whoever is calling when that special time went off was going to be our winner, and that is you. So the luck continues, man. You're man, get a, awesome. Yeah, you're going to get a Live Wild Yonder bottle. It. I thought luck was going to win anything. <laughs> yeah, so. there you go. Uh, yeah, so it's a good day. Yeah, so got that. We'll send that your way. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Thank yep. you, Jimmy. Yeah, best of luck and keep me posted on the hunt. Love to see some pictures from it. Uh, uh, will do, man. I appreciate you. Have a good one. Catch you later. Yeah, you too. All right. Well, we've still got one more great prize left and quite a few callers waiting on the line. So we're going to jump to another caller here. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Who am I talking to? Oh, this is James. Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you good. How's it going? Oh, pretty good, sir. Thank you. Um, real quick question. So good friend of mine and I, um, we were out scouting a couple of weekends ago and we were in an area where we camped at a trailhead We hiked down into the woods. Uh, we did see tracks. We actually did bump a cow elk and the way the trail runs is it actually sort of runs downhill and it is actually running between several I don't want to say peaks because they're not really that high, but just hills that sort of run up off to the side. And so you're sort of running in between here. We're guessing that the, um, that the elk are probably funneling off of those hills or mounds or whatever you want to call it, down into that creek bottom and then going back up. But it's all heavily wooded. Um, of course, you try to get off the trail, you're going to make a lot of noise. And so for archery elk um, in Colorado, it starts in uh, September, starts early, beginning of September. Uh, what would you say would be the best tactic to approach that? It's a brand new area. We don't know exactly where they're going to be, but we are seeing at least footprints. We're seeing sign going through there, not dropping. It's just sort of, you know, prints on the ground. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, elk elk utilize valleys a lot. They they use them for feeding at night often, but also just traveling between areas. I would say in a in a spot like that, the elk are probably living and congregating in that top third of whatever the rise is there, right? So if you've got two knobs on either side, they're probably in that if you cut the mountain into thirds, they'd be at that like bottom of the top third area. Would be where I would mm-hmm. imagine them hanging out and living. And, you know, in a valley, you've got kind of the benefit because one side is in opposite orientation of the other side, if that makes sense. So, like, let's say the valley runs whatever, you know, you might be walking down the valley and the left side is a north face and the right side is a south face, right? So, what I would gauge off of that would be what they're doing is they're feeding in that south face and then they're probably crossing mm-hmm. and then bedding in that north face, which you would think oftentimes they're oh, probably oh. doing the same thing where they're popping over the mountain, but it just, you know, might depend mm-hmm. on the other side. I, I, you know, depends on the topography. Sometimes the, the other right. side isn't great for bedding because maybe it's uh, real rocky or real steep and this side's a little more gradual or has more benches mm-hmm. or more water, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, you might not see a lot, like some will do that and some might not. So they might be traveling back and forth like that or depending on, you know, how they feel safe or whatever. That's probably what they're doing. The way that I would probably mm-hmm. hunt that is I would probably still try to get off the trail a bit and and get up 
right. those areas where they're living and then also getting into right. areas where you're calling to and from. You know, you, you know that there's elk in there. You just got to figure out where they're at most of the time. And and nice thing about the rut is the they dilemma. might tell you. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, as, as the rut goes on, you might hear those bugles. You might hear those bugles at night camping in there is a great way to be like, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of keep tabs on elk while it's not daylight. You can say, ooh, they're bugling up there. What mm-hmm. are they doing up there? They're running around. They're doing something. Or maybe they're doing that in the valley at night. And it just right. gives you a better idea of what those elk are doing. But that that would be my like guess of the best way to hunt that. Okay, all right. And last year I, I had a, um, a, a elk hunt and I actually did that. I got in real late, so I figured I'm already late. I might as well try to drive the road, hit a couple of bugles, see if anything responds. And I actually did get a response. So I know that's effective. It's just that for this particular situation, I have never hunted here before, so I don't know what the people activity is going to be like. So it's going to be kind of difficult to get in there and just sort of hope there aren't going to be a ton of people around there. But the other side of it is if there are, then focus on the areas where the people aren't or where the you know areas where they may push the animals off to. So Yeah, exactly. And what you're going to get on those trails is a lot of traffic, but sometimes people will just be staying oh, on yeah. the trails. They'll be going back and forth and the, those elk are just going to push up into the places that are just beyond that. So, you know, just getting a little bit out of the, the grasp of that trail, it doesn't take much, to be honest. It. Um, it is kind of where I would Got start. I'd, I'd say like, hey, we know that there's elk in this area. Um, you know, focus in mm-hmm. on those few spots and, and just see what you can find. And yeah, some of that is, you don't know until the light switches on on opening day. Sometimes I've been in places cool. where you go, man, there's going to be so many people here, never seen a soul in an area where there's just people ever. Right. And then you go to another part of the unit I did this last year, actually. Um, I was in, a, in an area and we're hunting and I was talking to a buddy and I'm like, we went to one spot and we didn't see a single person, single vehicle, nothing. We're like, oh, okay. And then we went to another place and we saw probably no less than a hundred people. I mean, it was just absolutely insane, right? And oh, it's like, wow. well, why are they here? Wow. And, okay. and there was more animals where there was more people too, but there was, I, I we, mm-hmm. we're like, we're getting out of here and we're going to where there was no one. I was like, I'd rather see fewer animals and fewer people, but- you know, it was just mm-hmm. one of those things like you just don't know until sometimes the the day hits. Okay. All right. And last question. We, we, we've taken two trips out there and both times we only saw cow elk. Should that be a concern? No, not because you're hunting the rut. Where the cows are, the bulls will be. I would say, okay. you know, if you're finding cows, they might not be there first thing in September but they will be there mm-hmm. mid to late September. So the cows probably aren't okay, going to change their location much, but they will, like the bulls definitely mm-hmm. will. Now, I, you know, if, you're, if okay. you can only hunt early, I would definitely think about maybe looking or starting to look toward other areas as well. Okay. Well, just okay. like a little right, bit great. higher That's elevation in that area. So yeah, I appreciate the call and best of luck yeah. to you. Okay, thanks very yeah. much. Take care. Catch you later. All right, we'll jump to a few more callers here. Let's see. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Remy. Uh, my name's Brendan. I'm calling from Hawaii, actually. Oh, right on. How's it going, Brendan? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, my question is about logistics around, you know, if you get lucky and get an elk on the ground. Have you had to ever take flights from to and from an elk, elk hunt? Or uh, and if so, how would you kind of manage that with the meat? I'm wondering, like, should I take it to a butcher and kind of have them ship it back or just debone it and 
ship a bunch of coolers back. I've just dealt with a lot with axis deer, and those are, as you know, much much smaller. So, yep, yeah, yeah. So, have any advice or creative kind of tips? Yeah, I've dealt with this a lot in you know both as an outfitter for our clients and then as just you know hunts on my own. There's a, a couple ways that I think are the best. I think the first thing that you would try to do because it's the cheapest and I've had the most success with it is not worry about shipping anything, but bring it back on the plane with you. It's actually the cheapest and easiest way to do it. The thing that's the hardest to bring back is actually the antlers. So the way that I do it is with the meat. Now, if, if you're in an area and there is a butcher and you can get it processed and frozen, absolutely do that. I'll, I'll get it vacuum sealed. This is what we do for a lot of our clients is we'll, we, we have a local butcher. We take it there and have the, the, like, can we, hey, we pay a rush charge on it and we go, they get it done. They get it done fast. Uh-huh. They vacuum seal it and freeze it. And then we pack that in a few different things. So you can either use like essentially like a box, like a wax, like a fish box. And you can pack those to oh, okay. 50 pounds each, you know? So you can do processed fish box, could do, I mean, I've done like duffel bags. For the most part, the, the hard part with Hawaii is like it's always hot, right? But like flying, yeah. we I, I try to fly Alaska Airlines a lot. And the nice thing is if you stop in, if you got to stop in Seattle, they've got cold storage. So you just have them put those cold stickers on it. And if it's sitting, they actually put it in a freezer. And then it's not, it's still cold underneath the plane. For the most part, I've flown a lot of long distances and never had meat spoil during a flight. So that's always reassuring because it's actually easier for stuff to spoil shipping because there's a lot more slowdowns. Um, it, it lasts, it takes a lot longer to get there. So you have to overnight it and even overnighting it isn't as, I think, reliable sometimes as actually traveling with it. And the the cost of overnighting something that heavy is insane. So it's actually the cheapest and best option is to uh, just fly back with it. You can generally get an elk back in three or four you know, luggage pieces. So depending on the airline, you know, you do a little bit of research on which airlines got the cheapest luggage and all that kind of stuff. And then when it comes to antlers, the best thing to do, you got to, there's certain regulations. You got to like cap the points and do all this stuff. So bring some cardboard. Uh, What I like to do is I always wrap everything up in, I get like a roll of cellophane and I'll wrap everything up. I like to split the skull so I just can stack the antlers together, wrap it in cardboard, wrap it with the cellophane. It just looks like this cellophane cardboard monstrosity and then sometimes i've got like a large duffel bag that i can put antlers in (laughs) hopefully sometimes i've got bull elk that fit in them sometimes i don't you know it's crazy how what you just like construct a box out of something or something you fit it in your like if you got a large bow case or something like that but for the most part it doesn't work that way end up just creating a box and and doing that and then wrapping it really good with the cellophane and i'll do that with the meat as well now if you can't have somebody process it then i just i bring a little vacuum sealer like you know one of those little vacuum sealers uh-huh. I've, I've butchered an elk in a hotel room before <laughs> don't tell anyone i'm sure like <laughs> the people cleaning if they would have gone in there it looked like a murder scene but like your brother cutting up elk on the uh, on sure. the kitchen counter or on the bathroom counter you know it's not ideal yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah you just the, the key is if you can get it frozen and whatever that's that's the best option so that's the way that i suggest doing it it can be difficult sometimes though, right? And I've even just done like like large pieces, vacuum seal them, find somewhere that you can freeze them. I've frozen many animals in like a hotel. So some will do it, some won't. Okay, yeah. That's how I was wondering if 
if people offer freezing services, even if it's not like a butcher or something, if, or I've heard even some gas stations, but that sounds like it wouldn't be like a Circle K or a Seven Eleven or something. You just never know, man. That's Small town, exactly. Western U.S. <laughs> is like a different place. Like I, I mean, I've I've like frozen stuff like. I've actually frozen stuff in grocery stores, which I don't think is even like legal for them. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Just freeze it in the back here. You know what I mean? So like, you yeah, just, you just they got know. a deli, they might as well. Yeah, yeah. And I've even got like, I've got a buddy that did this and he just like, he went and bought a, he had a rental truck. He went and bought a freezer from Home Depot and it was like 180 bucks uh-huh. or something. And he just like, plugged it in in his hotel room, froze his stuff, and then returned it the next day. You know, like, <laughs> unpackaged it, and, like, it was clean. You know, everything was vacuum-sealed that he put in it and just froze it while he's there and just, yeah. like, went and returned the freezer, you know? So, it's like, returned the chest freezer. So, there's uh, a lot of great. options if you get creative. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And then I have one more quick one. Is You kind of just mentioned it, but do, many, do you see many, like, rental U-Haul trucks up there? Or how, what? What have you heard or used in the past regarding getting around and on some fire roads and stuff? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think like there, there's actually a lot of rental companies now that have better vehicles. You know, you, I, it's uh-huh. funny. I rented a, I went on a hunt and I rented like a Toyota Tacoma and it was like $45 a day. I don't know how I got that deal or whatever. I was surprised because it's like a uh-huh. lot more expensive to rent a Home Depot or a U-Haul. Um, I have had to rent U-Hauls before, but they aren't as good as like some of the other things. And then I use Turo a lot. I probably use Turo more than anything. Just like a, oh, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like a vehicle sharing thing. That's how we normally rent vehicles when we go on a hunt. If we, if we got to fly somewhere. Okay. Awesome. Oh, cool. Really appreciate it. Thanks for all the, the good tips and all your podcasts. Yep. Appreciate it. Well, best of luck to you and let me know how it goes. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Yep. All right. We'll jump back into the calls here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Ruby, this is Corey. I'm from uh, California. Hey, Corey. Uh, I'm just going to... That's the sign that you are the winner of our Montana Knife Company Live Wild Edition Magna Cut Speed Goat Knife. So congratulations, man. Hell yeah. I'm excited, yeah. man. That's awesome. Thank <laughs> well, you very much. Lucky caller number seven, but I, I, I left you sitting there for a while. Made you sweat. <laughs> the last few times <laughs> caller number seven's you dropped did. off. I was like, all right, at least he's he's hanging in here. It's good. <laughs> well, awesome. Yeah, man. I wouldn't miss it. Uh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. That's Perfect. Well, what's your uh, what's your hunting question? All right. So my, uh, my brother Calvin and I, we are going to Colorado for a first season rifle, either sex elk hunt. Um, elevations roughly 9,000 to 11,000 foot. Um, I hunted there last year and that was my first elk hunt. Um, my question is, what is your process to find elk um, in that mid-October uh, season for, for either sex, like just locating them? Like if I can kind of get a general idea of where some are will be pretty successful. And then to go with that is uh, once you find them, uh, what tactics are you using a little bit differently in that mid-October time than you would, um, you know, in rut where you're going to be doing more calling, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. No, that's a great question. And 
And I think that one of the things that you think about is like the life cycle of an elk. And when they hit that mid-October, they're kind of coming out of the rut. So they've been wore down and the bigger mature bulls start to pull away. They go into a seclusion pattern. They're in some deep, dark holes, but the cows really start to feed sooner than the bulls. And some of them actually are, are being pestered by younger bulls that like kind of come in and try to hit a second estrus that still round them up. And because they haven't probably been rifle hunted yet, they've been chased around. There maybe has, you know, been a little bit of a lull between hunting. I, I'm not sure that area, if there's a gap between archery and rifle, but either way, you know, those cows will probably still be grouped up in some way and they'll be on a more of a feeding pattern or trying to feed. So the thing that I focus on is those, those feeding areas. And then the strategy is, find where they're feeding and then get to that area and and kind of like find them in the mornings and then hunt them in the evenings or glass. And you really want to be glassing first light and right at dark. Find those good glassing vantages where you can cover multiple areas where they might come out and feed. If you're in those elevation ranges, that's like high elevation. So it has those kind of areas, right? It's a mountainous area. So there, there's going to be some better feed areas. And if you can find those vantages where you can cover a lot of that and figure out where the elk are at, that's going to be your best option. And they're going to, it's going to be like the first five minutes of dawn and the last five minutes of dusk really is when you're going to really want to be focusing and glassing hard. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. It's my, my brother, we're trying to get him his first big game kill ever. So for him, he'll probably be shooting uh, the first cow or bull that he sees. When I was there last year, I didn't really see much elk. It wasn't until like the last day where a big old group of like four or 500 elk rolled in and were primarily on private land. Um, and that was more around 9,000 foot. I did find some cow elk around 10,000. And then I found some, you know, wallows and some sign uh, from where it looked like they were running up at that 11,000 foot range. Um, would you kind of split the difference between that eleven and 10,000 foot range or yeah, just, where would you go? Yeah, I'd probably um, go that previous experience. If you're just like, Hey, I'm, I'm looking to kill an elk. You know, what's happened is those elk are pushed toward that private and they're going to start stacking in there. And that's one of the things that happens very often in those type of units. Right. And you, they get big balled up groups and it becomes an elk magnet. Like the elk just start attracting elk because it's like, they know that they're safe there. And so hunting that, that fringe mm-hmm. of private and then the areas like the areas above and that are hard to get to, you know, if you can find, I, I look on the maps and go, oh, here's a place behind some private that's in that kind of mid to lower range. And it's like, oh, you got to walk a ways around to access it. You got to drop down from a road to, and hike back out to access it, right? Those are the areas that primarily they don't, like the elk will pop off and they don't get pushed right back sometimes because it's a little harder to get into. And those are the places that I actually would probably focus on. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, you know, you've seen elk in those type of areas, especially if you're like, Hey, I I just want to shoot a cow or any elk. That's a that's a great strategy. Cool. Awesome. I appreciate it, Remy. Thank you so much for, uh, taking the call and then also just for everything you guys, uh, that you do for the community, as far as this knowledge source that you have, I'm a, uh, adult onset hunter uh started this like five years ago and because of your podcast i feel like i found a decent amount of success and kind of curved that uh you know onset hunter learning curve that lots of people run into so thank you for, for everything yeah well thanks for calling in appreciate it and uh congrats again on the montana knife awesome thanks Remy. yep have a great one best of luck to you keep me posted on how you guys do as well i'd love to see you too. uh first animal that would be awesome so yeah best of luck to you guys oh i will i will 
Thanks, man. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, I've got a couple questions here. I, I asked some questions on social media. I figure I better read. I'll read a couple quick ones here. Ryan asks, hey, Remy, what's your go-to tactic to find elk when the heat of the day sets in and animals are bedded and are quiet from pressure? I tend to not want to push animals around because I camp near where I hunt in the backcountry. That's a great question. So I would break it down into three things. The first is glass into the shade and look for those rebeds. So I'm glassing probably into a north face across from a south face. You're going to be kind of baking in the sun. You get back on a ridge, try to find a little bit of shade. And, and you want to be looking directly across into these more darker timber bedding areas because what you'll see is you'll see elk popping up and, and moving around if they're in there. Another option is to look over water or a wallow. There's been places where I've hunted and say, ah, middle of the day, like, hey, I'm just going to kick it for a little bit, wait for the action to pop back up. And I've had elk walk in on me. It's not, I wouldn't say it's like a primary hunting tactic, but it's a good way to utilize time. If you're like, hey, I, I've got elk in the area. I don't necessarily want to push them. That's an option. And then the third one is I still throw out what I call midday Hi, howdies. Like I still rip bugles throughout the day in, because you never know when you're going to get a bull to, to pick up in the middle of the day. A lot of the elk that I kill are bulls that have bugled between 11 and 1. And that's just because when they sign off in the middle of the day, there's just something that you go, okay, you think they're quiet, but it's good to just maybe broadcast a bugle every now and then because you never know when one's going to maybe be bedded and talking to his cows and bugle back and go, okay, game on, or at least give you an idea for that evening hunt. Next question here uh, from Craig. He says, hey, Remy, in burn areas, what type of area will elk use to bed during the day to cool down if there's no thick stands of timber reestablished yet? And that's a great question. You know, in those bigger burn areas, the thing is they're just looking for shade and you can find shade in big burns where I've seen elk that's like, there's one tree that the half of, you know, it like burned, but there's still a lot of cover on it and it's casting a big shadow and there's three elk stacked within that shadow. I've seen it more times than I can count where you just find that little patch of shade, go to the shady side of the hill. Maybe it's below a rock outcropping. Maybe it's below a patch of a few trees. All you need is a little bit of cover of some kind. I've seen, you know, in fairly recent burns, some of those willows will pop back up fast or other types of shrubbery or other types of brush. And they're just like stacked in those wet areas where it didn't burn completely. Seen it a lot of times. So all you need to do is find a few places where there might be shade. And if there aren't those few places, then I would just continue to hunt and look for the, that fringe habitat where there is that shade. You know, if you're in an area where you're seeing elk and you're like, there's no shade around, just watch those elk and see where they go. Sometimes they're going a long distance and that might give you an idea of where they're bedding. So that's just something to think about. Well, thanks again, everybody that stuck with us, that called in today. I really appreciate all the calls, all the support. It's uh, awesome. I really like doing these these call-ins because I get to answer your guys' questions, the the things that you have coming up. And it, it's a lot of fun for me. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I will say, I get a lot of photos from people at the end of the season or during the season. They're like, hey, I asked this question and look, look at the success. So I don't know if it's a luck thing. I don't know if it's just people that are paying a lot of attention and, and really focused on, you know, finding that success, putting in a lot of time. It's just awesome for me to see that because that's the whole reason that I like to do this podcast, to hear those kind of success stories where guys are like, yeah, man, I, I got my first elk or I've been elk hunting my whole life and 
hey, I got my best bowl or I, I was successful. I filled the freezer. It doesn't really matter. I just, I really enjoy seeing your guys' success. It, it, it's awesome for me. Uh, big thanks to Montana Knife Company for giving us that knife to give away today and Yeti for the water bottle. You know, the thing about Montana Knife, there are some incredible knives all made here in America. They're sharp. They've got like a, a lifetime, this, people probably don't even know about this about them, but if you like damage the blade or you just want it sharpened and redone after the end of the season, you send it back, they'll do that. And it's not just for you. It's like for the lifetime of that knife. It's a generational thing. They're, they're building a brand where they're making knives that can be passed down for generations. These aren't like use them and in, in get rid of them kind of knives. They're really high quality, really well-made knives made here in America. So, you know, they've done a lot of their knife essentially like in order to get one, you got to wait for a drop. But they do have currently right now, you can go on and get either their Speed Goat or their MagnaCut Speed Goat. That's the one that we just gave away. And those are in stock right now. And they're trying to keep up with production and, and keep those in stock at all times. And then if there's something that you see on their website that you want that's not there, you go, it's out of stock. Well, they're continually trying to add more and more knife drops. So if you aren't on their email list, do that because that's how you find out about their knife drops. Um, it's just something to keep track of. So you'll know, oh, hey, this one's coming up and just jump on there. They make them in batches. They're, th people's hands have been on these knives. I walked, I went through and was watching some being made and sharpened and it was awesome to see the whole process. Um, these, there's a lot that goes into these, these blades and it shows when you, when you get one in your hand, you go, this is a really high quality knife. So if you're interested, you can check them out, Montana Knife Company. Big thanks to everyone. We're, we're doing elk month this month. So we've got, this is going, this is a Tuesday podcast. Thursday, there's going to be another episode. We're just going to keep cranking on the elk stuff. So if you guys have other questions, things that you want answered in a podcast, I didn't get to you today. Feel free to drop me a message on social media. Uh, feel free to leave a rating, a comment, whatever on this podcast. Thank you guys so much. And until next week, I'm just going to say, live wild. <laughs>